show. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. We're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Is this show killing people? Bad, 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 bad. Something good has to be coming. I'm so proud of us. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? I have so many questions right off the bat. For those of you who are like, my God, Michelle, you're too much. Chill out. It's McDonald's fault. When will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm, this one's a challenge. Both of my eyes are twitching. Here we are. Still here. Um, you still are. You still here? Because we are. We're, we're we're still doing it, whether you are or not. Welcome. Hello. Welcome to Angrement. It is the podcast where I, Catherine, and you, Michelle, we get together and we talk and we bring each other and you three things every other week or when we feel like it we've been a little irregular yes yeah, you know holidays are coming up i don't know exactly when you'll hear from us again but you will hear from us again that's both a and a promise we bring you three things which is a weird thing and a pop culture thing and a research thing and then at the end we stick them all in a blender of our brains and pour them out into a fortune cookie like saying Oh, that's like not an appealing image. Brains in the blender, (laughs) poured into a fortune cookie mold. That's how fortune cookies are made. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not the the same part, though. Oh, shoot. Well, if he's paper. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, you can make, you know, to be fair, and I'm already off topic. We're like, this is going to be a really short episode. And I'm already like, oh, well, speaking of blending things in a blender to make paper, I mean, you probably could make paper out of brains you can make paper out of most anything i have a friend who is an artist who made paper out of tomato soup what yeah and it always starts the process for her basically starts with a very cheap blender and she blends whatever she wants to make paper paper out of with water which thus the blender made me think of that huh it has enough it has to have fiber and she the tomato soup had enough fiber to make a really interesting paper surely brains have fiber right i mean i don't know not a actually i think brains are all cholesterol oh then it wouldn't maybe it wouldn't make paper then yeah we should see we should um gather some brains i ate brains once and it was it was like eating margarine what what is all kind of brains did you eat i don't not human I, I didn't I was it. not assuming it was human. <laughs> well, I just feel like we didn't I didn't make the logical pause there enough. Um, I don't know what kind of animal it was. It was in uh it was in Thailand and it was not it was a delicious dinner, but the brain was not good because it left a really oily, fatty residue in your mouth. Well, I'm glad you had that experience. So I don't have to. I feel like I can just live vicariously through that one. Yep. 
not my weird thing. Not my weird thing. We haven't even gotten we haven't into even started it yet. yet. We're talking this about- is just the like hey. warm up. Yep, eating brains, making paper. So to start us off, um, this is episode thirty six. Thirty six. We're gonna get to fifty. We're gonna get to a hundred. I think we're I don't gonna know when. Yeah, we will. We will. And there, we, we'll probably even have another side project before we get there. So. Oh, absolutely. You and I will not stay unside projected for long. Yeah. I know this. Yeah. I'm already itching. So you go first this episode, episode 36. I go first. All right. Well, I was recently on about a five hour road trip. Doesn't really matter how long it was. I'm just giving you some context. Um, across the Midwest. And I, I'm very curious as to which states are considered what. I was in Tennessee, which I think they called themselves the South. I don't know exactly where that fits into the whole argument. But so from the Midwest to the South, I guess, even though I only went really East, I'm driving. <laughs> I'm riding. I'm a passenger on the highway. And right at the Kentucky border, we had either just left Kentucky into Tennessee or we're just on the, this side of Kentucky headed into Tennessee. Traffic just hits a complete and utter stop. And it's like, it's it's dark, it's rainy, it's chilly. And like, there's just no, no movement. Like there's not any sign that like one lane is going to clear or like, it's just completely stopped. I try to check like, you know, the traffic stuff and they're just like 10 minutes delay and then 10 minutes pass and they're like 12 minutes delay and then 12 minutes pass and they're like 14 minutes. So we, we ended up being there about a total of like 25, maybe 30 minutes just without moving at all. Um, and then, well, I guess we did move a little bit because there was an exit just a bit ahead of us. So people started reasonably, what do you think people would do in that moment? Yeah, get out of there. They're going to drive to the shoulder and go to the exit and get off of the highway. That is, you know, perfectly reasonable thing to do. We weren't going to do that because there was nothing at that exit that we needed and we needed to be on this highway. So we were just going to wait it out. Right. Um, I guess if it had gotten into like two hours or we're running out of gas, maybe we would have done that. But we waited it out. But as we are sitting there watching these cars drive onto the side of the road, this Older gentleman, probably, uh, I would say like 60s, so not super old, but older than me, pulls his car into the shoulder and then just stops. And if the traffic went up, he would go up with it, but he would not leave the shoulder. So, cars so he was just treating the shoulder like another lane of the, for- the of highway. The stop, stop traffic. Nothing in front okay. of him. Just... Just he would just stay with the car where he had left his spot. He would just stay even with that car as as we went up. Even though he could have just taken off down the could shoulder. Could have just taken off down okay. the shoulder, <laughs> wide open, gone to the exit. As you might imagine, there are now people piling up behind him on the shoulder. And a few of them honk at him and he doesn't seem to care. And then they start driving around him on the grass. Um, And it's like a hill so we're just I mean, no, no. we're just like parked on the highway like oh well this is gonna be an interesting night to watch um nobody slid down the hill so good, good. but there were a few like but i was like oh that was that one gonna make it okay it did because some of them were like little like very low cars that like i was like i don't know if you should be doing that um 
And so, and some of them were like clearly angry at him. So they had to like spin their tires. I'm like, this is not, this is not the time. Like, right. Don't do that. So there's a giant like Yukon or something pulls up behind him and just, she's just laying on her horn, like 30 seconds at a time, just blaring. And I'm like, yes, yes, ma'am. That is exactly what's going to help this whole situation where we've all been sitting in traffic now for over 20 minutes. Thank you. Yes. I definitely want this soundtrack. In addition to my son loudly singing along with the backyard again, I'm not losing my mind or anything. Um, so oh, look, there goes the car rolling down the hill. <laughs> yeah. So she's laying her horn on and then she's, I, I, I just like, I'm amused by this. So I'm just looking out at her and she's <laughs> into all the other cars and like looking at us, like do something. I'm like, I'm not doing anything. Yes, yeah, everyone like, just start talking. That would be horrific. Solidarity. You're like, I'm like, clearly, whatever this man is doing is not normal, and I'm not messing with him. Like, I am just, I'm just gonna sit in my traffic until the traffic. You're literally, up. stay in your lane. I am gonna, yes, literally, I'm in my lane. Though I will watch you and see if you slide down the hill. Um, yeah. <laughs> if it seems like you're hurt, I'll probably come help you. But otherwise, I'm just gonna laugh in my lane. All right. So she gets out of her car. She goes up to the man who already had his window down. Cause I was watching the man and like, he had his window down and he was like tapping on his temples for a while. He was grooving to some music and like bobbing his head to it. And I was like, maybe he's like having a panic attack or something. But then I was watching him some more and I'm like, I don't think so. Like what is going on? And then again, like if the car beside him moved up, he would move up, but otherwise he stayed exactly the same. And in this time he had moved up to where there's now a pole where the people have been going around in the grass. So now they cannot go around him. And this woman is just losing it. So she gets out, she goes to the window and she's like, and she's screaming in his face. And I am, I am one lane away because there's a gigantic spot where he could just get back into the, onto the highway. Like he doesn't have to drive on the shoulder. He could just get back onto the highway. And it has been that way for a solid, like 15 minutes because people are leaving space for him because they're like, what are you right. doing? Right. Like you yeah. obviously, did you make a mistake? Like here. And so, um, I'm, and I am on the other side. So I can have a clear shot into all of this because there's no car between us. And so I'm looking, he reaches already had it in his hand, just pulls up and he's like, I have pepper spray and I will use it. And she, and he's so calm and she's just <laughs> screaming and she's like, screaming, screaming. And I don't know what would have happened except for like at that moment, traffic cleared. So she went and got back in her car. He stayed on the shoulder, matching the car in front of him. And I'm like, okay, well, is he going to at least like get off at this exit? No, he drove all the way up to the exit, matching the car in front of him and then got back on the highway and drove off. So what are your hypotheses for what was happening? So I messaged my, I have a group chat where we just share the minutia of our lives and <laughs> laugh about it. Right. And I'm like, what is going on? And I have one person like, I have no idea. Why would he be doing that? And I have another person like, I know exactly what he's doing. I know a guy like this. I'm like, what? I have to know. She's like, oh, cause I have, I have a theory. I want to see if this matches mine. So her theory is that he is so upset that there were people breaking the rules that he yep. was like, I must enforce the rule, even though it meant him breaking the rule and also pissing everybody off. And so it was a very much like, this is the rule and you all are breaking it. And I, this shall not stand. And that's the only thing I can think of that. That's I mean, like, what I would think of. Yeah. That? That's the only thing I can think that he was so mad. Everyone was 
going on the shoulder, he was like, I'll handle this. No one can go on the shoulder because I'll go on the shoulder. I'll be on the shoulder, but I'll be there for the right reasons. So it right, makes right. mine okay. Oof. Isn't that such, isn't that just such a little window into a certain kind of acting? Like I will well, break the rules he, to enforce the rules. He had his window down with the, with the pepper spray in his hand already. Like he knew he was going to be confronted. Yeah. He like was clearly like, you know, over there, like psyching himself up. Like when they come, you guys stay calm. Like, like, I know I am, ma'am. I know I am. Like, like how much of your life is spent doing this? I know. They're both two different kinds of terrible. If, if yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. was happening, him and that woman are different kinds of just terrible. Yeah, people. I was like, there are there are no winners in this match, but no. I'm in my lane, so I'm okay. <laughs> just yeah, it's a good thing traffic cleared, but also not. I wanted to see what happened. Oh, <sighs> well, you. I'm glad you got some uh, some entertainment while you were stuck on the highway. Did yeah, and this was in Tennessee. It was either. In Kentucky, right before Tennessee, or in Tennessee, right after Kentucky. I can't quite remember. I have to say, every time I've been in the worst traffic of my life, and also the angriest traffic of my life, always Tennessee or near Tennessee. (laughs) Always. Always. I'm in Tennessee a lot. That's no offense to Tennessee, but all offense to Tennessee also. So that is my weird thing. I'm going to, my weird thing, um, I'm going to start off with a trigger warning for you, Michelle, because my weird thing involves idiot university provosts oh. who don't know what they're doing and waste everyone's money. And I know that's... If I just fall silent, it's because I've muted myself while I scream profanities into the ceiling while Catherine continues her story. So don't yeah. worry. I'm here. <laughs> I'll be back when I've screamed myself out. I apologize <laughs> for this, but it was just too good. Yeah, I'm just going to recap the article I read. I read this article in Vice, this article about an event that happened at Northeastern University. The article is called No, Grad Students Analyze, Hack, and Remove Underdesk Surveillance Devices Designed to Track Them. And it's an article by Edward Ongweso Jr. So early in October, the senior vice provost, David Luzzi, installed motion sensors under all the desks at Northeastern University's Interdisciplinary Science and Engineering Complex. And it's a facility used primarily by graduate students. And it is also home to the Cybersecurity and Privacy Institute, which studies surveillance. Um, The sensors were installed at night without student knowledge, without student consent. And when pressed for an explanation, When students found these sensors in all their desks, they were told that it was part of a study on desk usage. So the students began to raise pretty valid concerns. Why are we being monitored in this way? That um, particular lab and building where the grad students would go already had, you have to have a scan card to get in so they know who's coming and going. There is really no reason to install like monitors on everyone's desks. And so they also found out that there was no IRB approval for this to be done. Um, And for those of you that don't know, that's institutional review board approval. And anytime any sort of study is done and involves human beings, you have to get that kind of approval. And it's a pretty big deal to do a study without IRB. Like it is, I mean, 
everyone I know who does research is like, oh my goodness, you have to jump through all these hoops for IRB. It can delay your research for a long time because they're very serious about making sure that you've met all these ethical guidelines. Yeah. So when the students begin to realize maybe this hadn't been vetted that way and they raise concerns about the censors, the vice provost sent out an email attempting to address the issues that were being raised by grad students. He wrote the vice provost that the university had deployed a spacetti occupancy monitoring system that would use heat sensors at groin level to quote, aggregate data by subzones to generate when a desk is occupied or not. And the vice provost insisted that this data from these groin level heat sensor monitors in every desk would be anonymized. So everyone's upset. So what what does the vice provost do in this situation? He's in he's in some hot water. People are mad. What would a vice provost do? He certainly wouldn't apologize and scrap the project. I know that much. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I don't think you'll be surprised to learn that his answer was a listening session. Ooh. Anyone? Did they call anyone? it a listening circle? Did they pass around <laughs> some things over who gets to speak? Um, at this first listening session, and I say first, Michelle, because yes, there are multiple listening sessions that happen. Um, at the first listening session, the vice provost asked that grad student attendees, quote, trust the university since you trust them to give you a degree. The vice provost also maintained that we're not doing any science here. And that was a defense why he didn't seek IRB approval. Um, well, for, for those of you listening who may not know, IRB is not limited to science. Like, IRB no, is not, for every single field. Not in like, the slightest. I've, I've, I've had people in like communications who were just giving out a survey to ask like basic questions like, do you read newspapers? And they had to get IRB approval to make sure that I understood my risks of answering their questions right. before I could take their poll. Like it's, it's for everyone. Yeah. It's not just science. So that's how that was the listening session, but students described that first listening session as he just showed up. We're all working. We have paper deadlines, all sorts of work to do. So he didn't tell us he was coming. He showed up and demanded an audience and a bunch of students spoke with him. He was very patronizing. He ignored our concerns and said it was a very productive talk and that he was glad we were working together to find a solution, which was ridiculous because the only solution we would accept was one where they got rid of the censors. So not only did he call a listening circle, um, a listening circle, a listening session, but he didn't tell anyone. He just showed up when everyone was working during finals and was like, we're going to have a listening session. So that listen to me. Very, very provost like to me. So provosty. So after that, the students at the Privacy Institute, which I want to highlight, specialize in studying surveillance and reversing its harm. That's what these grad students are there to do. They started removing the sensors and hacking into them and working on an open source guide so other students could do the same. Um, again, they are monitoring and surveilling students who are studying the harm and dangers of surveillance. Not, not a good look. Then the vice provost claimed the devices were, he had, he had previously said that they are secure, they're anonymized, they're encrypted, but it was very quick that the Privacy Institute students learned they were very insecure, they were unencrypted, everything was a lie, these were very hackable, they were not anonymized. Um, and one of the students said, the students of this facility, including myself, 
the way that we get publications is that we take systems like this and we explore flaws in them. We explain what's bad about them, why they don't work. And so they could not have picked a group of students who are more suitable to figure out why this study was stupid. And why so, they, do we ever find out why they were doing it? Basically, the most people could tell was that the university had the provost, vice provost had as vice provost or want to do, invested lots of money in a big, shiny cybersecurity building. Oh my and God, then, these people yep, in their buildings. At any point, if you want to mute and scream, go ahead. So yeah, provost made a big shiny building, then COVID hit, students were not coming to the university in person, um, and then all the universities decided COVID was over, even though it's not, and people came back. But most of the cybersecurity students in the Cybersecurity and Privacy Institute didn't come back because they could work, you know, their whole thing is tech and data. They worked from home. They didn't really go in much. But it was still important that they have this lab space. But basically what people can figure out, what the theory is, is that he wanted to prove not enough of their students were using this building so that they could fill it up with someone else and change what it was for and take away their use of it so that this very expensive building didn't appear to be sitting empty. So the vice provost looked bad. That's as far, that's, that's the theory that it was basically a way to force the students out and take away their, their graduate lab space. So, so the students to try to avoid a bad PR look for himself, he incorrectly and without acknowledgement tried to put a surveillance program in place with people whose entire like probably 60 to 70 hours a week of work is dedicated to undoing bad surveillance programs. And he didn't yes. think in any way didn't that think. that was going to. Yeah. 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 That sounds, sounds very provosty. So the students sent a letter saying basically what you just said, right. Which is like that. And that was followed by the second listening session, which the provost decided would be only for faculty, no students allowed just faculty, just tenured professors. Um, and so the vice provost claimed that the devices were not subject to IRB approval because, quote, they don't sense humans in particular. They sense any heat source. Yeah, like if um, when the raccoons get in and climb up into the chairs, they pick that up too. Yeah, exactly. Again, exactly. that's not how IRB works. We're not doing any science here, Michelle. And then the students kept removing more and more sensors. They put them into a big, they made a huge sign in the lobby of this building out of the sensors that said no, which I love. Um, then we get a third listening session because that's always the answer, just listening sessions. Um, and that was by all accounts, a disaster. In a transcript of the event that Vice got to write this article, the vice provost basically just really struggles to quell any concerns that the study is invasive, poorly planned out, extremely costly too, and highly unethical. And the vice provost says they submitted a proposal to the Institutional Review Board IRB, but then when a faculty pressed him, he admitted that he never even submitted for approval. So not only did they not get IRB approval, they never even submitted it for IRB approval. Um, and then again, the vice provost attempted to dismiss the concerns, 
of everyone, the students collectively gathered and forced the provost's hand. The provost finally sent out an email, no more listening sessions, just emails that said, given the concerns voiced by a population of our graduate students around the project to gather data on desk usage in a model research building, we're pulling all of the desk occupancy sensors from the building. For those of you who have engaged in discussion, please accept my gratitude for that engagement. But yeah, so that's um, in a nutshell, my weird thing is that this vice provost spent a ton of money to unethically surveil students whose expertise are on surveillance and they radically undid it. But I just want to make a quick note about a lot of things that are happening, hopefully good collective like union strikes right now, that all of those students at Northeastern were members of their student union and have a really good student union. And all of the quotes throughout the vice article said again and again that they don't think anything would have come of that if they weren't collectively organized and had a student union and everyone was afraid they were going to strike. So I think that is cool too. So yeah, that is my weird thing. Shall we move on to pop culture? Pop culture! All right. My pop culture is... <laughs> just, you just got... You were collecting your thoughts hard. I liked that look. Is the liminal space aesthetic? And you're you're more in tune to the, to the pop culture-y things that I am. I have not heard of this okay. aesthetic. Okay. No. So I am going to tell you... First, I'm going to read the definition from the liminal space aesthetics wiki, which I did not know there was an aesthetics wiki. But me neither. If you want to know more about the aesthetics in pop culture, there's a whole wiki for them. So the aesthetic known as liminal space, capital L, capital S, so the official thing, is a location which is a transition between two other locations or states of being typically abandoned, oftentimes empty, like a mall at 4 a.m. or a school hallway during summer. It makes it feel frozen and slightly unsettling, but also familiar to our minds. So that is a liminal space. It comes from the um, Latin word of lemon, meaning threshold. So they often, like people say that it makes them feel like eerie, a little apprehensive, sometimes nostalgic. Um, and so there is a push into, like that. that's kind of the academic meaning of it, but there's been a push to kind of draw it out into this visual aesthetic that has been happening in like TikToks and memes And there's a whole Reddit thread dedicated to them. And they say that it has a significant overlap with after hours aesthetic. And after hours is like exploring Mm. vacant spaces after hours, right? When there aren't people in them. Uh, But the after hours aesthetic is more playful and peaceful and tranquil. Whereas the liminal space aesthetic is more unsettling and eerie and disturbing. And so um, there's tons of examples of them. And then there is this spinoff. Uh, or one of the best known examples, it's called The Backrooms. And it came out of this uh, this creepypasta collection of um, 
of when you no clip out of reality, which no clip is a term for if you're like playing a video game and it glitches and you like go through a wall or something. And so uh. there, there was this whole like lore created around no clipping out of reality and clip and ending up in a dimension that humans weren't supposed to be in. So you start seeing things that you're not supposed to see. And so um, I watched most of, and I, I was a little bit late getting all of my stuff together or I would have watched the rest of it. There is a video um, that I will share so, so that you can put it from the show notes. And it has like over 40 million views. Um, oh, wow. It is a found footage horror short uh, where there's just like a couple of young, like teens or young adults. Um, they're recording like what looks like some kind of horror movie where like a guy is like in a monkey mask and like comes around the corner and scares somebody. And he's like, okay, let's get one more shot from back wide. So as he's backing up, then it like glitches out, which is supposed to be him like doing the thing into the the space. And he appears in what looks like an empty office building. But as he's walking through it with his like camera still, uh, it just keeps getting creepier and creepier and creepier. And there's like a weird metal monster and there's like a bunch of graffiti. There's a dumpster at one point. And so this is supposed to be one of those examples of like the the liminal space aesthetic. And so um, I will also share this mental floss article that talks about how all of this kind of comes together into this extension of an aesthetic that it is has gotten really, really broad. And so like, here's a quote from the Mental Floss article. At first glance, a photo of an empty school courtyard appears to have nothing in common with Kane's Pixel, Kane Pixel's Backrooms video, the one I just told you about. But Dr. R. Nick, R. Nichols, Nicholas Carlton, a professor of psychology at the University of Regina in Saskatchewan, Canada, noticed some threads tying such images together. And he says, I think it's actually not that you're having this metacognitive experience because you're in this transitional state. I think it's because it's nondescript. In the room I'm in now, there are distinguishing features. There's a window, there's a door, there's a desk. There are things that make the space unique. So I know where the space begins and I know where the space ends. And if I were to leave one part of the space, I would be able to see change and I would feel certain that I was leaving this space and moving into another. And so they think that part of what makes it creepy is that people are missing the like, this, this, idea that you can like leave this particular space. Like these are spaces that you're normally only in momentarily because it's normally right. a transition. Like you're not usually paying that much attention because you're only traveling through to get to somewhere else and you're thinking about your destination. Um, and so that when it just becomes that, that it is, it adds this creepy factor because I think it gives people a sense of like being trapped. Now, yeah, I think we've talked on here before about like how my, my brain doesn't, I don't have mental images. And I wonder... Cause like these don't creep me out. Like I look at them, like there's spaces where there are no people and I'm like, Oh, that looks really peaceful. <laughs> but I keep sharing all these like, <laughs> like this is supposed to be creepy. And I'm like, Oh no, I could totally just curl up in that little empty corner. Like that looks lovely. <laughs> um, like I'm going to, I'm going to share my screen so you can just see some. Yeah, I want to see these. I want to know, know my reaction. Find them creepy or not. Although I probably should have done that before telling you I didn't, but here's one like an atrium of a of the grand hyatt shanghai hotel i find that deeply upsetting and that is creepy that's very creepy a fake town oh, i can see yeah because it's yeah see yeah i can see you don't know if you're inside or outside there's an amazing video game called kentucky route zero and i think that's what they're trying to do oh my god i think i understand this video game more now because they have this joke about you can't tell if you're inside or outside in this building and you have to keep going into these like 
the highway is like the road you travel is like four dimensional and you keep falling. Like if you make a right turn, but then you fall into a different dimension. That's that's this. This is liminal space aesthetics. Yeah, I find these deeply creepy. <laughs> really? Like I see this yes. one in particular and I'm like, oh, that looks lovely. That one, to be fair, we're looking at the inside of an abandoned mall, which I think is almost after hours aesthetics. And I do like after hours aesthetics, right? Like when you're in a in a place that is for the public, but you're there when it's closed. I like that. This one's a skywalk, but connecting Union Station to a tower in Canada. Oh, man, I like it. I wonder if it does have to do with your mind's eye. I a lot of times when I'm having really bad nightmares, it will be about like um, stage sets, theater sets where then I can't figure out if I'm inside or outside and I'm trapped in it. So maybe I'm prone to this, but that's really I mean, I mean, it seems clear like people are building whole like horror stories around these. But it did reading about this made me think. So I'm just going to tell one more story. Um, we were once, and this was when my kids were what, pretty little, like my daughter was probably like seven, which means my son was probably like one, one or two. And we were in Kansas city visiting, um, my, my partner's family. And like, we just needed something. I, my kids are very active kids. We needed something for them to go do. And we found like, like a Chuck E. Cheese ish style, like indoor play place it was cold it was winter and so we went to it but it was shutting down like it it had a big like we are closed on this date and the, this date was in and like it was in like a strip mall that clearly like everything had been closing down around it so I guess it just wasn't getting the, the traffic it needed or anything but it was still open and we were the only people in there like Ooh. the only people in an entire like gigantic and they they even had like a mini roller coaster. They had all the big like flashing games where you could get the tickets and then go and buy things with them, you know, and like it was it was bizarre. It was one of the weirdest experiences that I've ever had because like all of the staff, there's like maybe three or four of them working still. They know that they don't have a job anymore after next week. They don't care about like, they're just like very like dejected looking in this bright sparkling, like right. everything's flashing fun, fun, fun. and like a lot of the machines were kind of broken, but not so broken. You couldn't play them just broken that they would like spit out like a thousand tickets at you at random times. And there were no lines for anything. So like all the rides, like. I know my daughter just rode the roller coaster over and over again for like 10 times. And there's an attendant just like, yeah, fine, whatever. Like just <laughs> like every time I would stop, like, you want to get off? No. All right. Like, okay. I'm here either way, pushing the button or not. <laughs> and um, it just made me think of that. Like it was a, yeah. a very strange experience. Because I won't say it wasn't fun. Like, I mean, you know, you had just free reign over this the whole thing um you know we had our bajillion tickets by the end but they what they had left to buy like what you right want, take whatever you want I don't care <laughs> yeah we're out of almost everything no that that space between shutting down but being open oh that's weird I am gonna say the closest thing I've had recently this isn't that interesting but sometimes we talk about are we in a simulation and I had something Speaking of like how this can be linked to video game aesthetics, I was driving home the other day and I glanced over 
into, I always drive by this high school and it had been really, really busy. They had had some big event. Every, everyone was like leaving and the cars were leaving. It was after dark. And so I was looking like, oh, what's happening at the high school? And I looked into a big window, which must've been the band room. And there was a huge banner. And I swear it did not have the name of the high school. It just said high school band. And I'm like, why would you have a banner in your band room that just says high school band? And I'm like, they just, the simulation didn't get to those details. They didn't think I was going to look over and they didn't fill it in. Okay. I'm going to chase liminal aesthetics. So um, maybe my pop culture thing is going to be so meandering that we're all going to get stuck in a liminal space, but basically I'm going to try to keep it short and not meandering and I'm already meandering. Oh God, I'm going to edit this out. Okay. Lindsay Lohan. We all know who Lindsay Lohan is, right? Did you watch this movie? Is this what this is where we're going with this? No, it's okay. not. Okay. Because because I know you yes. love the the yes Christmas movie. And we I'm not going to come to you, listening audience, with yet another discussion of Christmas movies. Am I watching all the Christmas movies this year? Yes, I am. Am I enjoying them? Yes, I am. Um, Thanksgiving Day, when all my family was calling, did everyone who called say? Oh, is Catherine watching Hallmark movies? Is that my whole personality for my extended family now? Yeah, unfortunately it is. And I have to own that. Um, but that's the way it is. So Lindsay Lohan is, what Michelle is alluding to, is kind of making a little comeback. She had kind of fallen off the face of the earth and is in a Hallmark, not Hallmark. It's a, you know, they're all Hallmark movies in a way, Even right? Even if they're not by Hallmark. It's like clean it. Well, but as you talk about in the machines. episode, I don't remember which number or we could reference it here. They they have this weird like political veneer that they're like battling out. Like the do you remember when you talked about this? Like this was probably yes. one of our early episodes. Oh so like, ago. <laughs> that one was, yeah, that one wasn't all oh with the angel and the dead angel baby. Oh my goodness. So this is on Netflix and she's in Netflix or have more money. I won't I'm already off topic. So Lindsay Lohan is in a Netflix movie called, I think, Falling for Christmas or something like that. Spouse asked me, oh, what have you heard about it? And all I had heard was that she seems healthy. Lindsay Lohan seems like she's happy and healthy. And that's good. Which leads me to my pop culture thing, which then I looked at my spouse and said, and I was like, I'm very happy. And he was like, why do you care so much? And I said, let me tell you why I care so much. In 2014, Lindsay Lohan had been in rehab many times. She had been arrested many times and she was trying to, she'd been in jail. She was trying to make a comeback and kind of last thing she did before she went out of the public eye, except for a short stint on Lindsay Lohan's beach club, which was an MTV show that she never actually appeared in. There was a documentary on the own network, Oprah Winfrey made. And basically, Lindsay Lohan was going to rehab her image and Oprah, you know, powerful, reliable Oprah was going to do a docu-series. It was going to be very serious. It wasn't going to be reality TV. It wasn't going to be, you know, for excitable. It was not. It was just going to be serious. It was going to show the world that Lindsay Lohan was sober and doing okay. Give her work. And I watched that when it aired in 2014. It's almost six hours long. And so I said to my spouse, if you would watch that, you would be very glad she's healthy and happy too. And then I immediately made him watch it. So my pop culture is 
I don't know how to talk about this. And I don't think anyone is going to go and watch this six hour long thing. I will put the link in. You can watch it all for free on YouTube, all six hours of it. And we did. We watched all six hours of it in two days. And what I want to talk about with it is I, the first time I watched it, remember being like, Lindsay Lohan is a mess. What a mess of a human being. Let's watch her downfall. Oh, she's in jail. Ha 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 ha. And we've talked before a lot about how things age or don't age well. And I rewatched this documentary and everything I, it just, it, it, it totally spun my mind right around about where were our heads in 2014. And if we stop and think, oh, the world is awful, it's falling apart. Well, it is. But also some things have gotten better. Like how we treat women in the media, it's not good still, but it's gotten better. And I remember thinking, everything Lindsay Lohan is doing is all her own fault. She deserves her downfall. And I watched it again in 2022, eight years later. And oh my gosh, everyone around this poor girl is a monster who is just enabling her. She is trying so hard to get sober. Her parents are monsters. So her mom is like constantly drinking in front of her. Her father invites her to dinner and yells at her because she hasn't bought her younger brother a car yet. And he's, and just everyone in her life is the worst. She has a sober coach who just is leeching money from her. I don't know what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is rewatching it eight years later was just a total sea change mind shift that this poor person, this poor girl who was trying to get sober, didn't have a chance. And I think we, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, Michelle. Well, no, I mean, it was a fascinating watch. And I think like Paris Hilton recently had a documentary, Britney Spears, where they're saying the way we treated you was abhorrent and right. we're sorry. Right. And I think Lindsay Lohan needs that moment. And if you want to give her that moment, you should go watch this documentary. But it's really heartbreaking. She's working really hard. She's trying really hard. And there's a really heartbreaking moment where basically she realizes her career is kind of over. Um, she realized that this is more reality TV than like anything serious. And she, her life coach is telling her, just put yourself on tape. Just put yourself on tape. It'll be fine. And this is someone who, you know, amassed millions of, and billions of dollars at the box office. And now she has someone who is just telling her to do very basic things. And basically halfway through, spoilers, she breaks her own tooth in the night so that she can go to the dentist the next day and like does this well-orchestrated thing of falling off the wagon. And everyone is kind of like, this is her fault. She broke her own tooth. But she goes to the dentist to cement her tooth with no discussion. And like, it's a normal thing. The dentist just hooks her up on a drip of Valium and fentanyl. And I didn't in 2014 know what fentanyl was. But right. the fact that just to cement her veneer, this dentist puts her on a heavy drip of fentanyl? Everyone around her was just not helping her. And that was wild to me for all the details. So yeah, basically I'm just saying that Lindsay Lohan also was someone that the 
the media and the world and all of us, including me and the way I judged her and my 2014 misogynistic brain, um, who wasn't very caring about addiction. Yeah, we all just, we also need to just apologize to Lindsay Lohan too. And it makes me think about, um, like, this was a a bit earlier than that, but I worked um, when I was in college. So from like 2000, a, no, 2006 to 2008, probably I worked at a Walmart. And so as a cashier, and I was always just always standing in front of the racks of magazines. Cause that's where they were like, up at the, so yeah. I just was constantly the covers of magazines, covers of magazines, covers of magazines. And we were awful. And I like, I still see, I, I, um, you know, I think I, I know I mentioned that I ghostwrite some celebrity yeah. stuff, some blog posts. And, um, it's, it's never mean spirited like that. Like it can sometimes be gossipy, but it's never that like mean spirited stuff. Um, and it's just, I've really seen a shift in how we talk about any of those issues, like how we talk about people's bodies, how we talk about people's mental health, how we talk about people's addictions, divorces. Um, like, I feel like the only time that we still kind of go on that, like, almost fervent attack is when they're called out for doing like some, some misconduct of some kind. Right. Like the right. I'm thinking here of like, um, who did the, who like was so racist on the set of community, uh, Ch- Chevy chase, Chevy chase. Yeah. yeah. Like that one, like we're still very like pile on that's fine. Or, um, like anybody who's done like sexual misconduct on the set. Right. Like we're definitely, we're still like, pile on that and rightly so right like um but i but those like things that are outside of people's control things that they're not culpable for even when they are but it's maybe just not our business right like right you have an addiction issue that's maybe just not for me to comment on i just feel like there's been a huge huge shift over a very short period of time and i'm interested in is it because the rise of personal social media made it harder yeah maybe like because you see people you care about having problems and if you continue to lash out at them so harshly and thoughtlessly you were being confronted by the fact that like oh I'm talking about people I love like I am oh my gosh are you saying that oh that maybe like social media and even the more rise of the internet has made us see human beings as human beings more I think I am in a way yeah which is like the total opposite and I understand it also dehumanizes yeah. people on yeah. a level that yes. we have never seen before but I think cool, it's right? really interesting in different ways but I just think there aren't many arguments that it has humanized anyone much and I think maybe that's one in well, favor of I am very careful about my media diet and I curate spaces where people are incredible like um like I've been recently exploring some of my own neurodivergences and quirks and things. And so there are some Facebook groups dedicated to people who are neurodivergent, just trying to do things like clean your house or cook food when you get overwhelmed by executive functioning tasks. And they are the kindest, most accepting, most loving spaces that I have ever been in. So it's hard for me to not defend. And these are, these are strangers, right? But these are strangers who are just 100% 100% there for each other in this. I mean, would they be in any context? You know, like I'm sure there's people with different political views and I'm sure there's people with different, you know, things that if you they were in another context, maybe they wouldn't be kind to each other. But in this maybe, you space, know, they might honk at you if you pulled into the shoulder, but 
in that space, they're going to be kind to you. And and I think I've also just told you how much I love shit posting groups and they're yes. they each take right, on their it's own. The same. Yeah, yeah. They take on their own flavor. And there are so many shit posting groups where like people will post, like they'll make it a meme, but they're posting their personal like traumas or their personal like struggles. And it's just, it's, you're, they're just so seen and people are always like, Oh, I'm here for you. I see you. Oh, this reminds me of my story. Let me tell you how I got through that. And like, I just, I think that we can't, continue to treat celebrities as if like they are some yeah. guess, whipping boy for all of our society's ills if society's ills have been exposed on a broader level right yeah and this also yeah this is an interesting thing about what is shown and aired in the public square and what is not i think almost all celebrities these days are much more, you wouldn't hide an addiction issue like that. You'd be very open with it. Whereas Lindsay Lohan the whole time is just like, I have a drinking problem. But then Oprah is like saying like, what about the Adderall? She's like, we're not talking about that. And so there's so much hidden, which makes everything so much harder for her clearly. And this is the way the paparazzi, I think even with the paparazzi, we still have paparazzi. There's still an issue, but to watch some of this, how she negotiates it, um, part of this is she just moved to New York and she's trying to move into an apartment in New York and the paparazzi are always camped out wherever she is. She can't leave her hotel room. And the way she negotiates it is really interesting where if she goes out to eat, they just swamp the place. And she's very good at being like, hey, if I go back in my car and come out and you get a photo, will you leave? And they're all like, yeah, we have more important things to do. Let's get her shot. Great. And she does it again and again and has no problems doing that. And the only time she really has a problem with paparazzi is she can't go to AA meetings. They will she's, they will follow her there. And then anyone, any sponsor she has, anyone else at those meetings will be exposed. And to watch her say, I can't go to a meeting. I need to go to a meeting right now, but I can't put everyone at the meeting at risk of being exposed because they'll be on TMZ is really heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That is awful. I would, I would, hadn't even considered. So yeah, that's my pop cultures. We owe Lindsay Lohan as well, an apology. I'm going to put the link in the show notes if anyone wants to spend six hours being really sad. We have all been way too happy lately. So <laughs> I know, I know the world is just in too good a place. Yeah. So not any major issues anywhere. <laughs> no, no, not a one. Can't think of so were there two attempted coups in <laughs> yesterday where where like Germany where and yeah peru right but that's the thing i have to say where where because right? there's well, so because many by the time that this airs you know like oh yeah there were more than two yep there's the germany the peru i i listened to the missouri fourth district rep cry at the thought of protecting gay and interracial marriage rights today it's been it's been a fun day Okay, so that's pop culture. I don't think my research thing is going to take very long. I don't know. I mean, I, I shouldn't guess. I should just, I should just start talking and see Let what happens. What people be. <laughs> so my research thing begins by telling you about a man named Neil Williams, who is the chair of the Health and Physical Education Department at Eastern Connecticut State University in 
Wilman, Wilmantic, Wilmantic. I don't know how to say that. Somewhere in Connecticut. I assume Eastern Connecticut, thus the name of the school. All right. So um, I assume he is still there. I went to his LinkedIn and it looks like he is still the chair. Um, in 1994, he published an article in, let me see the name of the journal real quick. I'm going to open it up. In the Journal of Physical Education, uh, oh, this isn't showing me the full title. It's like Physical Education Sports and Dance, I think it is. So he published, this is this is a journal, you know, like an academic journal at physical, the journal of physical education, recreation and dance. He published an article titled the physical education hall of shame. And he has since updated it multiple times um, is now the fourth update came out in 2015 is the most recent one. So over multiple years, like so from 1994 to 2015, he has published four times a list of the Physical Education Hall of Shame. And so I'm just gonna read some the, what this is. So he wanted to write a document to with the goal of establishing and identifying certain activity programs or games, which although physically demanding, do not contribute to the development of motor, cognitive, and affective skills of the students. Such meaningless activities have limited physical activity time promote minimal participation, embarrass students in front of their classmates, and are primarily concerned with having fun. <laughs> this guy sounds like a treat. So, well, I, it's interesting that you say that, because as I was researching him, I went to his um, Rate My Professor comments, which I don't know how much stock you want to put in a Rate My Professor comments. Oh, <laughs> how much stock do you want to put in <laughs> I think you have to dig into them a little bit to decide. Like you, you can tell when somebody just got a bad grade or when somebody yeah. you know, really yeah. has some complaints. Um, mine, but... just, mine just define me as someone who curses all the time. That's my whole, not not a good teacher, a bad teacher, a cursing teacher. That's just who a I cursing am. one. Yeah. I always got like, um, she makes you write really hard papers, but she cares a lot. So she'll help you do it. <gasps> That's the best. That's that. the best. Anything that's like they're really hard, but they help. Really hard, but they care. Perfect. So he has a 3.9 out of 5. And um, overwhelmingly, he has... Does he have any chili peppers? He, he does not have chili peppers. The I was worst part of... Please, I don't ever want a chili pepper. That is a no. horrifying... Oh, my... Who did Why that? does the that worst, exist? For those of you who are not that. up on the Rate My Professor, um, they added a chili pepper so that you could mark if you thought your professor was hot. Uh, like, the, in the sense that Again, were... that feels very, like, 2010, 2014, right? right? Like, not... I hated Lindsay Lowen. And, like, what I mean, today? you can't control, if you're a professor, you can't control that you get a Rate My Professor profile put up, like students do it. And so if a student rates you as hot, like you can't do anything about it. I don't, I don't know. I, like, I'm not a chili pepper professor and I'm okay with that. All right. Um, but his students seem to really like him. They said the only difficult part is his papers. But once you write one, you get the hang of it. They are just time consuming. But I think it's funny because this, this one starts with class was very fun. So as somebody who's railing oh. against the fun, <laughs> just not in PE. Just not physical fun, mental fun. They call him a hard taskmaster who is equally encouraging. A very hard grader. If you're a poor writer, don't take this class. 
great guy. He will make people feel good about themselves and has great communication skills. I don't know. Seems to overall, it seems like he is a fairly tough grader who cares about his students is my impression from the rate my professor. So um, I just, I'm just fascinated by this idea. And I, it seems like I could not get full text access to the latest one, but um, there are full text versions of one, two, and three online. So if you wanted to read through them all, and it seems like in 1992, the first one is just kind of a rant. <laughs> um, it does seem like in subsequent versions, it has gotten a little more in depth and a little more thoughtful about like the pedagogical and socio-emotional aspects of physical education and like, you know, if our goals are not to shame kids, what kind of, what kind of activities should we be doing to meet those goals? If our goal is to make students have like a lifelong appreciation for physical activity and their own place in it, like what kind of activities best support those goals. So I feel like it got better and more, more nuanced over time. But I just want to, I just want to dive into the 1994 <laughs> one because I think it's a lot of fun. Um, so these, these are the criteria. To qualify a game or activity, you need only possess one of these elements. So it's you got even one, then you go in the hall of shame. Absence of the purported objectives of the activity or game. Potential to embarrass a student in front of the rest of the class. Focus on eliminating students from participation. Overemphasis on and concern about the students having quote unquote fun. Lack of emphasis on teaching motor skills and lifetime physical fitness skills. Extremely low participation time factors. So if they spend most of the time just sitting around waiting for uh. it to happen. Extremely high likelihood for danger, injury, or harm. Um, okay. So okay. The, in the original one, I will not read. There's there's like a, so the, the, the whole article, which as somebody who has gotten a peer-reviewed article through the peer review process before, I'm a little irritated that this is just like a, little, <laughs> a list of games and then a ranty paragraph about why this game is bad because I could write that peer-reviewed article all day long. Um, it's got like four citations in the first paragraph just about like previous people who have said what physical education should be without even any quotes from them. And then just a rant about games that he doesn't like, which I'm not saying isn't useful. I'm just saying... That would not get me a peer-reviewed journal. Article. No, that's, that's no, all I'm not a chance. Not a chance. <laughs> maybe these are two would eat you alive. <laughs> Since yeah, maybe. Yeah. So um, I'm going to read the games, and then I'm going to give you some quotes from one in particular. Yeah. So, <laughs> line soccer, which I've never heard of, but it's apparently no. also called side sideline soccer. He doesn't like that one. Um, I'm going to skip that one because that's the one I'm going to tell you more about. So we'll come back to that. Okay. One. Red Rover. Ooh, I mean, I, that has all of them. You're eliminated, danger, embarrassment. Yeah. Spend a lot of time just standing around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, Simon says. Okay. Uh, that I, seems like that would be good for your cognition. I, but, oh, well. but, but it's PE. You don't care. Yeah. yeah. It's like he wants physical exertion. Um, where's the next? Sorry. It's also not formatted. It's never make it through. Uh, <laughs> tag, tag, tag makes it onto the list. Okay. And that's, okay. I'm going to go up and read to you some key quotes from a game called Messy Backyard. Is this something you ever what? played? 
Messy I've backyard. Never heard, okay. never heard of that. Well, he calls it in 1994 a misbegotten creation that still seems to show up in variations, most recently in several textbooks and a national phys physical education publication. So it was already dying in 1994, but then somebody tried to bring it back from the grave. So it apparently they can, is they use like a court separated by a net or barrier. So like they put up like a volleyball net basically. And each group has a bunch of stuff. So he describes it as oh, no. 15 to 50 foam discs, Nerf balls, plastic bowling pins, and assorted other objects. On the teacher's signal, the students begin to throw the objects over the net to the group, other group side. Students may catch or pick up any and throw it back. The action is fast, furious, and borders on the maniacal. The game consists <laughs> of several rounds, and the object is to clean up your messy backyard and have the fewest objects on your side when the round is ended, usually after about a minute by the teacher's whistle. Okay. So here he is saying why. First of all, he doesn't believe that second graders can count the items to accurately know how many who they have left in Ooh, such a fast amount of time. Anyway, fair. then it does just sound like a chaotic mess of a game. His third point is that the game is almost completely mindless. Students are told to throw all of the objects back over the net as fast as they can, but actually the best strategy is to collect everything that is thrown over to you and then wait until one second before the round ends before bombarding your helpless opponents with 100 assorted balls, discs, and bowling pins. But because the teacher almost always ends the round without any warning or regard to how much time has elapsed, actual thinking does not help the players at all and is usually a hindrance. Combine all of the aforementioned with the inevitable 200 decibel screaming that goes on in such a game, twice as <laughs> loud as a Guns N' Roses rock concert, and you have one of the all-time champion Hall of Shame members. Nice Guns N' Roses <laughs> Timely. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I could not read the 2015 article in its entirety. I tried to access it through my library and I could only get the citation, but it did in the um, abstract have which games were most recently added. So the most recently added games were Tug yeah, of War. Totally. Okay. Capture the Flag. Okay. Climb the Rope. That's just the rope climbing? That's it? Yeah. Yeah. It, okay. It's super dangerous. Like I, we didn't yeah. have it oh, yeah. in my school. No. Um, but my partner did in his and he's like oh yeah like kids crack their skulls open like it was like like it was like a two inch pad underneath of it oh, and they would gosh. climb up people get rope burns and then it's everybody watching everybody standing around yeah. watching one person Ooh. try to do like extreme upper body strength like yeah that it, it, i think that might hit like almost all of the yeah things all star lines i'm assuming does that mean that like this all-star athletes get the, this this used to happen to me in PE where all the athletes were like on one team all the yes always. Like, what are we even doing always here? with like dodgeball yeah. yeah I would rather play messy backyard than dodgeball any day but neither is good um athletes sit out on game days shirts versus skins and Ooh, attendance yeah. taken while students sit in squad lines all of those are the latest edition does he give any examples of things he does like of good games no or is no. this just all problem no solution i mean i again maybe in the the more recent articles this one is pretty much just a rant past peer review with all problem no solution great good job reviewer too can you what games do you think would 
pass it. I just basketball, basketball, maybe like badminton. Yeah. All the like team. I hated all the team sport ones. I hate it. Oh yeah. That I have done some um, curriculum design projects with current PE teachers and the stuff they have to do now is so much more involved. Like they have to write like a real curriculum for how this game meets all of these different standards. Like I, I mean, there were just times when like ours was like, yeah, I don't know. Here's a ball, go throw it. Like it was, but the, it, it is, it seems much, much more involved, but I don't know because I'm really resentful about PE actually. Uh, I know that that's a common thing, but I'm particularly <laughs> resentful because like, I'm actually really like being athletic. Yes. I, like I, I like running. I like lifting weights. I played roller derby for a while. I like, I don't mind physical exertion, but I spent my entire adolescence thinking I hated it because I yeah. hated PE with such a deep, just burning Ire, right and so I just I feel really cheated that I wasn't introduced to other ways of being physically active beyond humiliation and right and pain and standing around for long yeah. periods of time all the things how yeah. did you come across this article and this man um I came across this article because a mental floss article popped up in my Facebook feed that was like, PE used to be so much worse. Here are eight things that have been eliminated. And they had a reference to him in it. Ah. <laughs> the okay. action is fast, furious, and borders on the maniacal. I'm like, that's everything <laughs> my children do. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, though, that does that that particular messy backyard game does sound wild. Sounds just terrible. like, yes, throw it. Just that yeah. sounds like someone just was throw, very just tired. Some plastic over the net at each other. Someone was hung over. They hadn't quite cleaned up from the last class. Just, just throw it at each other. <laughs> I don't know. I'll blow my whistle sometimes. Now you have a guy writing an article on it. Several articles year after year updating it. <laughs> okay. Well, my very connected research thing. Are you ready? Yes. That just is going to fit in so well. Oh. Um, I, I want to talk today to you. And I'm halfway worried I've done this before. So if I have, sorry, we're in, we're almost at 40 episodes. What do you want? Um, I want to talk today about Tasmanian tigers. Oh, I saw the article. I did not read it. So I'm excited to hear what you said. I don't think you talked about yeah. Tasmanian tigers before. Um, I love Tasmanian tigers. I have never seen or met one in person because they have been completely extinct since 1936. Um, and what has them on my mind for research, this is a full exploration into the thylacine. They're, they're colloquial known as Tasmanian tigers, but they are called thylacines, um, is because of the article you mentioned, Michelle, which was last week. It was announced that the remains of the last, the very last living Tasmanian tiger in, cap in captivity, because the last one living was in captivity, they thought the remains of that Tasmanian tiger were lost, that they had been actually thrown away decades ago because they, the museum, which is in Tasmania in Hobart, had no records of it. They had records of it coming into the museum and then no storage records of the remains of the last Tasmanian tiger. But they were not thrown away and they were not missing because last week, long thought lost, 
these remains were found in a cupboard in the museum. And yeah, so they were never really missing. They were just misfiled. And it was at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery, which is where I learned about Tasmanian tigers for the first time. I got to visit Tasmania, which is an amazing place. And I went to this museum. I bought a stuffed Tasmanian tiger and they have video of Tasmanian tigers in zoos, which was really affecting to see something extinct on film is is for various reasons different than just saying, here's a here's a picture or a photo. But yeah, just watching them being in these old timey sad zoos was really it was really sad. So that museum, uh, yeah, they had basically mislabeled it as educational purposes instead of as archival. And so it was the very last Tasmanian tiger on earth. And um, the remains when it died were handed over to the museum. They mislabeled the purpose of the remains. Um, so the specimen went undetected basically since 1936 when it died for over 80 years. And it was, in fact, not only was it prepared and put for educational purposes, it was used for a while for educational purposes, because it was a very good specimen. And so they toured it. They used it to teach students, teach children. People were touching it all the time. And then they just put it away in a cupboard, never to be seen again until now. So that's interesting that we have found the last living, now dead Tasmanian tiger remains. They're also on my mind. And I just wanted to tell everyone about them because earlier this year, very early this year, it was announced that scientists might try to bring them back from extinction, not in any like ethical, like let's have a breeding program way. Basically it's a company based out of Texas that calls themselves a de-extinction company, Colossal Biosciences. Not at all sus, not at all. We're in Jurassic Park territory or any problems like that. They're but, certainly doing IRB. Oh, of course, of course. Because they're doing sciencey stuff. So basically, yeah, they're planning to de through genetic, they're going to genetically resurrect the Tasmanian tiger. Or so they have said. And everyone's like, this is just, it's a stunt because I'm going to get into it, why they went extinct. But basically they're saying it's an it's a stunt and you can't reintroduce them back into the wild. We can never really bring them back from extinction. They would live in zoos only. We'll see. I'm not holding my breath for the genetically engineered Tasmanian tiger to come back. But so what is this? Would birth them? Because that's... That's a good question. I read like five different articles on them bringing them back and there were no details whatsoever other than we have genetic material. But Other than what was takes. put in a cupboard. No, no. That's why it's very suspicious. <laughs> They're just like, we're doing it. Don't ask questions. Sure, we have IRB approval. Don't worry about the monitors near your genitals. Don't They're just for heat. They're under don't the desk know. for a reason. Just to help the thylacines. Don't you want them back? They're really cool. So <laughs> so there's been a lot of um, interest and heat towards Tasmanian tigers or thylacines. And so I just wanted to inform, I did some research because I, everything I knew about them was from the Tasmanian museum that misfiled them. So maybe I do my own research. What do you know about Tasmanian tigers, Michelle? They look cool and there are no more of them. They're a yes. mammal. They are a marsupial. Yes, they're a mammal. They're a marsupial. 
Um, I would have guessed like? that, but I did not know that. So yeah, it's like safe bet because they're Australian. Um, yeah, Tasmanian tigers are called Tasmanian tigers because while they were at one point native to all of Australia, the last place they were native to was the island of Tasmania, which happens to a lot of animals um, in Australia where Tasmania is kind of so isolated. That's where they live in the wild for the last time. Same with Tasmanian devils, which I'm going to talk about a little too. They were, they're, they're extinct from actually being in Australia and they're in Tasmania, but mainly they're in zoos now. So if you have not seen a Tasmanian tiger, they are cute. I agree with you, Michelle. I think I read an article, NPR describes them very well. And NPR says the four-legged animal is actually a marsupial in the same family as kangaroos and looks like a mashup of several species. Picture a bear possum-like tail, the body of a wolf with stripes along the back, the pinched face of a fox, and a pouch on its belly. Voila! The Tasmanian tiger, also called the Tasmanian wolf. So thylacines are marsupials. Oh, they have pouches oh. like kangaroos. They're native to mainland Australia, although they were last wild on Tasmania. They're shy. They're nocturnal. Aww. Oh. And yeah, it's basically like a tiger with a kangaroo patch, but they look like I I when I was looking at pictures of Tasmanian tigers, they look like if your late dog, wonderful dog Mickey Frito, mm -hmm. had a baby with a fox. And then you painted tiger stripes onto that thing, yeah, onto that yeah. baby. Which is They're cuter cute. than like, you know, like, and then you smooth out the rough edges of all of that and it's cute. Yes. They're very dog-like. They have stripes. That's the tiger. So here's a fun, here's a fun thylacine fact. I'm going to throw these in throughout because I did my research, Michelle. Yeah, you And did. I'm not reserving animal facts for weird things anymore. Basically... Thylacines are one of only two marsupials ever in which both genders have pouches. What? What's the other one? The other one is the water opossum from Central and South America. Now, I immediately thought, yay, gender equity, yay, equal parenting. But the pouches are not to carry children in both genders. And I was disappointed to learn that. I thought maybe they were both carrying the babies around after in the feet in the um women thylacines, the female thylacines, that is what they're for, that they carry them in a pouch like you see kangaroos do and other marsupials. For the males, they just protect their genitals. They're just pouches to go over their external genitals to keep them safe. That's it. <laughs> Think about, I keep getting that like um Facebook ad for the boxers that have like a like a, a what are they like a hammock inside of them like that is that's what I'm going to just like they were the original yep. the originators of the boxers with the hammock in them we should knock off of those called Pelicine brand testicle hammocks or whatever but yeah, um, and same with the water opossums. They're just pouches that their genitals are in and they can like protect them and suck them up into the pouches if they're in danger. Not to, you know, carry children around. No, no. So it's for useful things. So basically, here's another thing. Um, they are cousins of the Tasmanian devil, which is another animal I completely love. They're so, so cute. 
And they're also, Tasmanian devils are in trouble. They're extinct from mainland Australia. They're mainly in zoos these days. And that mainly, some scientists say that Tasmanian devils will be extinct within 40 years because they have a very transmissible form of face cancer that is just ravaging through the population. Right? They have transmissible face cancer. It's very sad. Um, yeah, it's contagious face cancer, basically, that is I've just never, killing off. Like, if you had given me a hundred guesses for what is killing off the Tasmanian devils, that would not have been on the list. Contagious face cancer. No. Um, it's killing them all. It's really sad. And researchers noticed it in the 1990s that it's a facial tumor disease. It is a cancer and it produces disfigured growths and kills them within a few months. It's really fast. Does like, and, is it because they can't eat or is it like, what is the, is it the actual cancer itself kills them? Or do you, did yeah, you the cancer itself. Thing? Yeah, I did. Oh, I, this, this I learned at the Sydney Zoo because the Sydney Zoo has an excellent Tasmanian devil ex, um, exhibit and I read all about it. And then they ask you for money after you watch a video of, You're like, of course, Tasmanian devils. Take all oh, my money for the face I cancer really, cure. I emptied out my change purse. And in Australia, your change can be up to $5, right? They have $1 coins, $5 coins. I lost a lot of money that day on the Tasmanian devils and I hope it cures their face cancer, but it hasn't yet. But it is really helpful for research into cancers and like spreadable cancers. And they're finding it. And also how um, various diseases move from animals into humans because they are worried that this can spread to humans. And then we'll all be dying from well, transmissible face. Don't cancer. worry. As soon as we see that there might be a highly transmissible disease, we will globally act with sense and collective reason, as we have so well proven. Sorry, now I was on mute screaming. Because <laughs> not, that's nothing's wrong in the world today, as we've said earlier, okay. because that's what would happen if that was ever to happen. So one of the reasons for the Tasmanian tiger's extinction and one of the reasons why they say you can't really bring them back, interestingly enough, was also a rapidly spreading disease in a similar vein. And it was form of a, it wasn't cancer. It was a form of canine distemper, which I did not have time to really, really look into, but that's what it was. And scientists found that, so people are saying, well, if we hadn't already limited how many Tasmanian tigers were in the world, there would have been more that could have survived it. But scientists actually say they have such little genetic diversity, Tasmanian tigers, because they've been around for so long, they don't live in a lot of places, that they would have never survived. No matter how many there were, they would have eventually been wiped out by this disease, this form of canine distemper. Um, but... Their extinction is also completely the fault of like colonial settlers who treated them like pests, who put bounties on their heads, who hunted them. And in fact, this is a very sad thylacine fact. They were so hunted and it was, you know, so well documented because you could get bounties. You would go collect money for um, killing them. We know the name of the farmer who killed the very last wild Tasmanian tiger. And that's Wilf Batty. Fuck you, Wilf Batty. Um, Wolf? Wilf. It's a very Wilf. Australian name. Wilf, Wilf. Batty? Wilf. Wilf Batty. W-I-L-F? 
B-A-T-T-Y, Wolf Batty killed the last wild Tasmanian tiger. He shot it because it was bothering his chickens. Which fun, the fun thylacine fact, they were so demonized and hunted because farmers thought they were killing their goats and their chickens. And scientists later found their jaws were too weak to ever hunt those animals. And they weren't killing them. And it was probably dingoes, which are still alive. They didn't get extinct. So it's sad. So what, did they eat? what did they eat if they couldn't even eat chickens? Because chickens seem like it's a pretty... Little, they little, like little mice? things. Yeah, little mice. Because their jaws are very big, but they're weak. And they just couldn't Like couldn't kid scissors. Them. Exactly. Thylacine jaws are like kid scissors. So they were hunted, um, and that hurt them. Some people also blame dingoes for their extinction. But, except for dingoes doing the things they were scapegoated for, dingoes are not nocturnal. And so they tended to hunt during the day and be around during the day. And so they were never really in direct competition with one another. So that's a lot of thylacine facts. Here's another thylacine fact. They can, speaking of their jaws, they can open their jaw up to 80 degrees. That sounds horrifying. Yeah, it's scary. I saw it in the video. And if you go to the Wikipedia page for thylacines, you can see all the um, video footage of them and you see them open. They yawn and it's like, it's like in Beetlejuice where it's- Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, yes. That's what they look like. Yeah, it's, they're very cute until they open their weird, weak kid scissor mouths way too wide. Um, And if you want to know about their, it just- I got really caught up in reading about their extinction because it's so fairly recent and there is video footage, which I think changes it. And it's so well documented because people just assumed that there were more and more of them, that they were out there and that it wasn't a problem. So, you know, Wilf Batty didn't think he was doing anything wrong. He had no idea he was killing the last one. So the last living thylacine died in captivity at the Hobart Zoo. The last wild one was killed in 1930 by Wolf Batty. The last one outside of Australia died in 1931 in a London Zoo. And the very last one that was hiding in a cupboard in Hobart, its bones, died in September 1936 at the Hobart Zoo. And it just gets worse. It died on the night of September 6th into the morning of September 7th sometime in 1936. And it died as the result of neglect. It was locked out of its shelter and its sleeping quarters and was exposed to a rare occurrence of extreme Tasmanian weather where there was extreme heat during the day and freezing temperatures at night. And then they locked it out of its cage enclosure and it died of neglect and exposure. How? And they knew it was the last one by that point, right? Mm, No, they didn't, which is wild. They, in fact, didn't even publicize its death because they said, well, we'll get another one for the zoo. But there were no more. And it was already too late. The official protection of the species by the Tasmanian government was introduced the 10th of July, 1936. So they knew it was a problem and they introduced legislation to protect them 59 days before the last one in the world died. So I think there's lessons there. Um, yeah, that's really sad. Breaking. There have been people 
since 1936 on to present day that have said they have seen Tasmanian tigers in the wild, but there is absolutely no, nobody can get hard proof. Um, ironically, there's now a huge reward if you can find proof of one as opposed to hunting them bounties on their head. But there have been really extensive searches. And so scientists feel pretty safe in saying until the creepy colossal biotech in Texas does anything about it, we've probably seen the last of them. Um, so so that's very sad. I'm going to end it with a more upbeat note. Um, fun thylacine fact. They're sometimes called dog-headed opossums or tiger cats. And they do look like tiger cats. But cats, tigers are cats. So the tiger cat thing. Tiger dogs, I think, would be better, but um, and they can hop like kangaroos. They can hop means, like kangaroos, like on just yeah. their back legs, or like they move like kangaroos, where their back legs move in tandem and they hop. Because that's a fun fact. The difference between um, that's that's a weird. Did you know that about like wallabies and kangaroos? They can't move their back their feet separately. No, they only move in tandem. They're like one foot. A kangaroo cannot go left foot, right foot. It's just foot, foot. And they cannot, period, move them separately. And there's a very interesting animal called a tree kangaroo, which is a long, long ago in Africa descendant. They split whatever was the, the old ancestor of kangaroos, split. One went up into the trees, and that's tree kangaroos. The other stayed on the ground. That's kangaroos, wallabies, all those marsupials. And the only real difference is that tree kangaroos can move their feet independently of one another and kangaroos can't. Wow. And that I did not research. And I don't know why. Like, what's, why? Yeah, like what physiologic, like what physiology is happening that prevents like. Yeah. That makes me feel stuck and uncomfortable when I think about that, like liminal space aesthetics, when I think they can't move them separately no i actually think there's a lot of i don't know if we're ready to go go into the connection i'm ready that's okay. it i've I've, okay. I've tapped my thylacine facts i've made us sad about how the last one died i wish i hadn't learned that but but now, now we all I, have to be burdened with your knowledge yep Okay, so should we recap? We should recap. Okay. So, so for, weird for, thing. For weird things. We had my traffic story where the guy went on the shoulder to keep anybody else from going on the shoulder. And my weird thing was at Northeastern University, the surveillance of grad students studying surveillance. My pop culture thing was liminal space aesthetics and the spaces of um places that we normally pass through or places where there are normally people that are empty and apparently creep most people out but and mine <laughs> mine was uh, uh re-watching the Lindsay Lohan document knowing her apo an apology my research thing was the physical education hall of shame and mine was uh Tasmanian tigers all right okay so I think there's a connection between like the liminal space and and stopping to look at a space that you normally just pass by, right? Like I think, yeah, the liminal the, space is like the person on the shoulder was like both 
the shoulder is sort of a liminal space, but also their the act they were doing of enforcing while breaking the rules seems kind of. And it, it makes me think of you saying watching the film of the Tasmanian tiger was yeah. so disturbing because like, you know that you're looking at something that has gone extinct, but you're looking at it in a space where it's almost like dead and not dead, right? Like, right, like it's um, dead and it's going to die. But also just that kind of the moment where they said, oh, we need to do something and act to protect it. The The space of its extinction, which was faster than anyone knew, in a weird way makes me think of you talking about kind of the Chuck E. Cheese you went to, where they all knew it was shutting down, but it was still open. We have to keep and doing know, the actions until, yeah, yeah. Whereas this was we didn't know it was shut down and we start, we were opening like the actions for it. And I, don't know. And I think that there's something about the sensors on the students. Like, I think that provost just didn't think they were going to find them. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He thought he was just going to put them in and get his data and then share the data. And no one yeah. would ask where the data came from. God. Yeah. And so like, uh, it's about looking at a space that you weren't expected to, to spend that much time looking at. Right. Like, looking at a space that normally and and maybe that's even true of the it, I'm probably showing my own biases here but I don't think anything anybody really cared what we were doing in our PE class when I was like at the age where this guy was writing this nobody cared what we were doing it was just like get these kids out of this classroom and let them scream and run around for an hour so that we can have a break I don't care if they're being shamed or beaten bloody with plastic bowling pins that are being thrown over a volleyball net just get them away from us (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah okay no I think that's that's except Lindsay Lohan which I think we can oh but I think the liminal space there maybe I don't know if it's fair to say liminal space but there's something I think in the fact that it it really just made me feel dizzy almost and and what how I remembering watching it and what I thought this document was going to be and then what it actually was and who knows maybe I'll watch it in another eight years and it'll be something entirely different it's it's a very interesting marker of and the fact that it's available for free all six hours of it on YouTube means that it's not something we're really meant to be looking at anymore right like I think there's this like yeah absolutely oh that's like the liminal space of what is free without ads on YouTube yeah this thing that costs so much money to make, it was like, it, it, uh, I think, um, for the own network, it was the biggest like money maker and expense for them to date. Okay. So they all fit into that, like liminal space, looking, looking, looking what, where you're not expected to look, pausing where you're not expected to pause. Or isn't it just liminal space, which is stopping where you're not expected to stop. Well, I think the liminal space is when the liminal space is there. I mean, this is kind of like if the tree falls in the forest, but like the liminal space is there, whether you're there to witness it or not. Right. So I think that the connection is that it's the examination. But you stop in it because it's like a space that you're supposed to just move through without stopping or much thought. But then you stop there and take it in. And that is that is when the unexpected or the creepy or the unethical sensor tracking or, the or yeah just these of the creature happens right no, all these feelings the feeling of of watching the Lindsay Lohan of of watching the last Tasmanian tiger of it's just it's a 
it's a strong, creepy feeling like that aesthetic. So if we have a night, okay, so we've blended our brains, we've made paper, now we're writing on the paper before we put it in our fortune cookie. And mm-hmm. oh, that paper is slippery, all covered in cholesterol, greasy, greasy paper. It's going to be hard to write on, but we're going to do it. What do we write? Because all that's coming to my mind is stop and smell the liminal space. Which, I mean, it's I bad. that's not bad. Stop and smell the liminal space. <laughs> eh. Is so we have to stop better? and spell the liminal and then put a bunch of space and then put space. <laughs> yeah. Because it makes you have to pause where you're not expected to pause. Ooh, and that's the space you need to smell. And it can be scratch and sniff and it smells like our brains. Oh, our brains. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what a brain smells like. <laughs> like margarine. Um Stop and smell. I mean, if you're okay with that, I don't know. I'm okay I, with that. I think I'm I think throwing that, that into the ring. I kind of like it. I yeah. would I would embroider that on a pillow. I yeah. would actually put that up, stop and smell the liminal space. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Cool. I'm we aboard. did it. Wait, we didn't even have to like, that was like the first. Oh, wow. I'm proud of us. I'm so proud of us. I'm impressed. Yeah. That was a, that was a very quick one. We didn't stop in the space of it. Ironically. We just. It was ironic that was quick. Yeah, we should have. We didn't hang out in liminal space to get to the. Well, we had hung out in so many liminal spaces. We were ready. Exactly. Exactly. We didn't need to create another one. Okay. Well, there you have it. We're going to be back. We will. Another day. Did you send us some grab bags? Send us grab bags. See see how easy this is getting for us? Don't you want to? We need a challenge. Angrymentpodcast at gmail.com. It can be audio or text. You can even schedule to come on with us and do it live. Some people would pay good money on like Patreons to do that. And we're just begging for you to do it. (laughs) Come on with us. Talk to us, please. (laughs) Okay. Until next Fortnite or whenever we record again. Whenever we decide we're coming back. Goodbye. Goodbye.